1: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator and this week my guest is the writer and publisher Matthew Hollis whose new book is The Wasteland, a biography of a poem. Just catching the last gasp of Eliot's centenary year for that great breakthrough poem. Now Matthew what does it mean to write a biography of a poem? I mean this is There's a lot of material in here which is about the circumstances of the poem's arrival, isn't it?
0: Well, I think there is perhaps a conventional reading or understanding of the act between a poet and a poem, that a poem is received by the poet. And Keats used to say that if a poem does not come as easily as leaves from a tree, it better have not come at all in the idea that there was a a direct muse and inspiration and out the poem came. But I think for a lot of poets, that's not the case. I mean, Lucky Keats, for many of us, it's like pulling teeth using our feet. And I think one of the unusual things about The Wasteland in particular was that here was an occasion where there were two minds at work. And although the poem has an author and it certainly has an editor too, There was a sense in which the poem was possessed by two different people in two different bodies and two different minds at the same time. And they had the same thought about what this poem should be and that a convergence took place.
1: You're talking about Eliot and Pound,
0: presumably. I am talking about Eliot and Pound and particularly the idea that a poem is somehow outside of the poet as well as within in in the experience that many of us assume that it's something that was internal that we expressed. That was an idea I was quite interested in. So in that sense, I thought about the poem as an object or an artefact, even a thing in the world, even almost a, a creature in the world, or more like a stage, perhaps, in which people enter and exit. Eliot, of course, Pound, Vivian Elliot, of course, and all the factors of the war, Spanish flu, all of that entering onto this stage that is the poem. and From that creates this life story of the poem.
1: Yes, you talk at one point about the corridors of the poem, which I think is a very fertile sort of architectural metaphor anyway.
0: Well, Eliot had an idea that that all literature happens at once. And this was an incredibly important idea, both to him and the kind of poem that he wanted to write, so that his poetry was as equally informed by Homer as it might be the moments in the war around us. And so while we can think about a, a poem as a corridor with influence and time moving in one direction, that wasn't Eliot's idea, and that wasn't his starting point for The Wasteland. His was more like a chamber in which all these influences entered. They all swirled together so that Homer was sitting next to Pound in the same room. And in this milieu, this timely moment where all channels filter into one, that was the moment that he wanted to live and write. And that's the moment he thought that all literature should aspire to.
1: Now, when you conceive the idea of writing this book, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to put words into your mouth, but if I was setting about to write a book about the wasteland, I would be thinking, Christ, is there anything new to say? Now, (laughs) was that your feeling when you started? Or do you think there's there's something burning that people have missed that people haven't got, or that there's a different approach to this poem that naturally suggests itself to me?
0: Well, as somebody kindly said to me at the time, it was a well-travelled path in which the cobbles were already smooth. And I think that was right. And I didn't set off trying to find new things that I thought hadn't been found before. I mean, as you rightly say, there's a nearly a century of research and history and reading behind the poem already but I think what I did want to try and do was tell a story about its composition and the processes that brought the poem into being and perhaps if successful or not successful try and help readers with the idea about how to engage with a poem like this. A poem that after all is often regarded as one of the more quote unquote difficult that's been written and perhaps a poem that comes with warning signs to your health and to your understanding and of course has this extraordinary body of literature, outstanding research surrounding it as well. And just to help readers find a way through that was not intimidating, but help them to think about how to engage with poetry and how to have an experience that was meaningful to them, which after all was Eliot's great hope for the poem.
1: Yes, it is it is kind of hard to read it, isn't it? At- 100 years on. I mean, I, I, you generously reprint the original text as published in the 22 edition of The Wasteland at the back. And, you know, three in four lines are by now either the titles of other books or quotes that live in your head. You know, I was rereading it. It's, it's, <laughs> it. it's quite hard, isn't it, to get at how fresh it was and how different it was at the beginning. I mean, of course, a lot in it is quotation anyway, but was it hard for you to get past the sort of monumental? already familiar nature of it.
0: I think what you say about its freshness is absolutely spot on Sam because at its time there hadn't really been anything quite like that. There are one or two cases Hope Molise, Paris a Poem had been out and Jean Cocteau had been writing in a not dissimilar form in Paris but there was a reaction that was of in some areas, a total lack of comprehension about what this poem might be when it arrived, because it was so unlike the language of the poetry that had been written. And to give a little context for listeners to that, here is a poem that's published in 1922, although its thinking begins perhaps back in 1915, 1916. But it's coming out of a moment in which the poetry that was in the ascendancy at the time was known both affectionately and non-affectionately as Georgian, coming from the period of of King George. And it was a poetry that was interested in a world that was pre-war, that conducted, as it were, the good manners of literature in homely and, and pastoral settings that, at its best, could be an outstanding engagement between the human being, and the natural world, and the pressures on it. And we get some fantastic writings out of the period, whether they're Edward Thomas or Robert Frost. Well, it's good to say you, you've written a book on Edward Thomas, so you're,
1: you know, you've got a foot in either camp, slightly there.
0: I probably have. And where it was good, it gave us some of the early, certainly early century ecological work, and it absolutely had its place. But Eliot was not alone among a wave of writers and artists who felt that with the explosion of the Great War that had swept onto the world stage, in which 10 million combatants and 6 million civilians and numbers estimating up to 80 or 100,000 sometimes people died from the influenza that swept around the world after the war, the feeling was in, in this literary camp that... Those good manners of the Georgian times could no longer be held up to account. Here was a world led to war by upper-class amateurs who produced a slaughter that had never before been seen. And what we needed was a new way to respond to the world with a new language and a new set of ideas. And when I say it met in certain quarters with a lack of comprehension, famously Time magazine questioned whether it was even a real poem. And they suggested that it might have been a fake. There, there wasn't an author. There wasn't really a poem. It was a hoax. And that, that's quite an interesting idea. Not only that someone would write a hoax, but secondly, that a hoax of this kind in poetry would garner so much attention as it did.
1: Nope. I mean the progress towards it wasn't as really the first reaction against the Georgians, I guess we would say was you know the great ringleader Pound was imagism. and but this poem has gone beyond that. I mean'm interested in one of the quite early in the book you describe how Pound and Elliot had to kind of go through a kind of French style to get to Gerontian and then on to the wasteland that it's it's moved on quite away from the the earliest flutterings of what we of as modernism.
0: I think that's right. Pound was already in London when Eliot arrived. And Eliot arrived in 1914, having been in Germany when war broke out, and found himself unexpectedly in London and became friends with Pound, who then was the ringleader, the kingmaker of of the literary court. And he'd already told Richard Aldington and H.D., in a Kensington bun shop, that they were imagists. And that meant three things. It meant paring down the language to its absolute minimum. It meant using a musical phrase, not a metronome. That's a straight dig at the Georgians and the Victorian verses with its iambic pentameter. And not being caught up on images that would cloud and clutter a poem. So he wanted a poetry stripped back to its absolute minimalism. And his example of the poem in the Metro was a very famous one from 1913. So when he met Eliot... And he read early on The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock in TypeScript. And in fact, he was the person to get it published for Eliot. He sent it off to American journals and and finally had it published in Poetry Magazine in Chicago. He saw in Eliot somebody who had already modernised, to use Pound's language, who had washed his own face and feet, he said, and didn't need to be taught how to write the new language, the new poetry. That was big of him. (laughs) It was big of him. But also, at the time, Eliot wasn't writing like Pound. The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock is nothing like imagism. But he identified a spirit and engagement and a language that he could see might work. And Pound's efforts, early efforts, to funnel Eliot, produced an experiment with the two of them writing in what they called a French form of Gautier. And it was quatrains. It was very tight, buttoned up. It was in tetramic meters. And it became rather like a straitjacket to the ideas that the two writers would burst out from. And you see it in Pound because what he goes on to write after that is Mobley in translation, but basically the cantos. And you see it in, in Eliot too, who moves from those poems into Gerontian, and then, of course, into The Wasteland. So, arguably, it was a necessary passage, but actually, if anything, it was possibly a wrong turn that prevented these poems coming earlier than they might otherwise have done.
1: Now, an enormous amount of what, what you describe is about, you know, Eliot's, if you like, Eliot's inner life, Eliot's relationship with Pound, Eliot's relationship with his wife Vivian, which, you know, obviously we know is very troubled. I mean, I'm wondering how we square the personal origins of The wasteland, as you frame them, with you know, Eliot's almost most famous pronouncement, which is that poetry is impersonal.
0: I think you're touching at the core of one of the things that make this poem so lasting and so pertinent, because you're absolutely right. One of the things that Eliot was saying at the time, and what's fascinating about Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, is you can see him building up to it in his criticism. During the war, he starts to make a contribution to his living, to his earnings, by writing literary criticism. Although at the time he's working at Lloyd's Bank and doing slightly better from the banking than he is he from the... His... always
1: <laughs> trying to get him out of the bank, isn't he? he <laughs> like, the greatest
0: waste, of, you know, the history of art. The greatest crime to literature is is Elliot in a bank. Whereas, funny enough, Elliot enjoyed being in the bank because he he liked the routine of it, and he liked the protection it gave him from the emotional world of his marriage. he had met... Vivian in Oxford in nineteen fifteen and married her two months later and a year only a year had passed by the time he'd realized this had been a tremendous mistake because she was not well in her physical and mental health and it triggered a domino series of events of ill health in both of their lives that that would mark their entire relationship but he would say fascinatingly it also informed the poem hugely so Eliot at the time is trying to mark out in his criticism a poetry which he thinks is impersonal, but he doesn't mean that exactly as we might sound it. What he's responding to is a gush that he he and Pan think is synonymous with Georgian and Victorian verse, where the personal pronoun, the words worthy in self, is located at the centre of the poem, And he thinks that's an experience that's too dependent on the writer. And actually, we need to move the onus onto the reader and give the readers clues, emotions through objects that they can understand. And that's where he comes up with some of his other famous expressions about poetry. So when he says it's impersonal, what he's really saying is that a writer has to find a way to communicate their own engagement and personal experience in the world in ways that are not about them but that can have meaning to others in their world. And his famous remark about impersonality does have a little caveat at the end where he says, well, of course, only the people that know what it's like to have a personal experience and to to suffer personally are in the position to do this in the first place.
1: Yes, that caveat seldom reproduced alongside the original quote, is it?
0: But it should be because it's key. Yeah, Yeah.
1: (laughs) And he he did later in life, didn't he, say something to the, I'm going to misquote it, but something to the effect that the Wasteland was a, a wholly private rhythmical grumble.
0: He did. It's nothing that's been directly written by him. And it's something written down at a talk that he made. But he did, he described it as a rhythmical grouse, a grumble. And he was responding to the fact that by that stage later in his life, The Wasteland had been suggested as being the voice of a generation and a response to world crises. And he said to that, well, that was very flattering, but it was a kind of nonsense because really what it was was a personal grumble against the world. Slightly arch, that, isn't it? Yeah, slightly arch and slightly spoofed too, just in the same way as if you read him talking about the infamous notes to the poem when he said that they ought to be taken at face value, whatever that means. He had a sense of mischief about this too, but it was serious. He did see it as a personal gross. And by that, he was particularly thinking of the suffocation that he was experiencing in his marriage and potentially the fact that he thought he made a wrong turn in his life, married the wrong person, and that what he experienced afterwards was a kind of penitence for that decision. Well, yeah.
1: no. In the lead up to the poem's composition, I'd like to talk of a couple of kind of pivotal moments that you describe. And one of them is his trip with Pound to Perigord, where you say there's this moment he has in the cathedral and a moment he has in some caves. (laughs) What was the significance of that? What happened to him on that trip to France?
0: Well, this was a trip in the summer of 1919, and 1919 was a key year for Eliot, because at the beginning of the year, his father died unexpectedly. And his new year in 1919 begins with the death of a father, to whom he had become estranged. Now, his father had sought of Eliot an academic career at Harvard, which looked every bit on the cards until Eliot turned his back on it. And one of the anchors to his decision to turn his back on it was his marriage in England. And with it, not only became an anchor of a life in London, but a literary life in which Eliot had decided that he was going to make his career, perhaps not his income at this stage, but his career from literature, to his slightly parsimonious father. This was an ill decision. Elliot took a pilgrimage from London to the family home in St. Louis to present himself shortly after the marriage, only to find that the marriage was not approved of. And to some degree, he was going to be cut out of the family finances and inheritance because of it. His part of the money would be left in trust that was to be returned to the family should he die so that Vivian, his wife, could not get her hands on it. Now, to Eliot, this was a major blow. He wasn't to be taken seriously as a young man, making his own decisions in marriage or in writing. And he vowed that he would be a success in literature. But by the time of his father's death, he had little to show for it. He had the what's effectively a pamphlet, the first book, the Prufrock Poems. And he had a pamphlet with the Hogarth Press of Virginia Woolf. And it was it was a poor return, he thought so. His father thought so too. So when his father died unexpectedly, he felt that his grand decision had fallen unproven. And he vowed that he would try and prove his success to his mother and also try and recover a closeness with her. So in the summer of 1919, he's with Pound. He's beginning to move into towards his new style of writing. He's working on the draft of Druntyan at the time. But he is wrestling with ideas about a kind of spiritual redemption to move away from his father's religion, which he thought did not have the answers he was looking for. He hadn't found them in himself. His
1: father was a Unitarian, wasn't
0: he? That's exactly right, Sam. And one of the ways it is possible to look at the wasteland is a sort of pursuit for a different kind of spiritual engagement that he could not find in the devastation of the war or the, the lack of fortitude in the Unitarianism that he'd been brought up in. And at some moments in his walking tour in south of France with Pound, he visits the caves at the Font de Gaume. And in there, he sees some ancient Magdalenian wall art that connects him timelessly to the expression of artistic feeling that he connects with when we were speaking earlier about the chamber of a poem in which all things are happening at once. This is what happened to him there. He also had an experience in the cathedral where he was engaged with the martyrdom of the history that he'd been reading in the area, where the Cathars nearby had gone to the flames rather than renounce their faith. And all of these factors suddenly combined for him a strong idea of faith, a strong idea of art a commitment of sacrifice of a purgatorial kind that will come to inform the Anglo-Catholicism and his reading of Dante. It's
1: the intolerable shirt of flame we later meet.
0: Exactly. There's absolutely running through him at the moment. And these are all forces that start to pour into what will become the pages of the wasteland.
1: Now, I'm interested in particular in that because you know, as much as we talk about, and you've talked about Pound and Eliot being sort of joint fathers and Pound's you know, jokey preface verses do the same thing. You know, he's the sort of Caesarean operator. You know, we can see the extent to which they're simpatico in kicking against the Georgians, in wanting to, to find a new form of poetry. But there's also a really strong divergence there, isn't there? Because almost at the same time as Eliot gets God, Pound gets economics. And that seems to take them in quite different directions, doesn't it? How do they kind of bridge that gap?
0: They never do. Not really. And it's as though here were two young men. Pounder was already well established when he was looking after Eliot, but he was giving Eliot a huge hands up in the literary world and helping shape him. And I think we can see this extraordinary moment where their, their forces, the flow of their own creative streams converge at the moment around the wasteland. It happens once and it happens really once only. Eliot gives a little criticism on Pound's work, but not much. Pound is constantly criticising Elliot's earlier work, and that, that suits them fine in as far as it goes with their French style, as we were calling it from Gautier at the time. But it happens with The Wasteland, and it doesn't really happen much after, interestingly. And in fact, after The Wasteland, Elliot only asks his opinion once only, and that's on The Hollow Men, although Elliot will support him as a publisher at Faber & Faber. So they do have this moment, but it's also one of sibling tensions too. They have different visions, for social order, as you rightly say, Sam. Eliot starts to think that the way to respond to the anomie of the world around him is through religious faith of a kind he hasn't been able to achieve from his family's Unitarianism. Pound thinks religious faith is fraudulence, that it's just yet another layer of exploitation and control and only a new form of progressive economics will redistribute opportunity, wealth, income, provide a more egalitarian world. So Pound says the only way is to put the money first and society first. Eliot says, no, the individual and the spirit must come first. And on that ground, they begin to part in ways that will never come back again.
1: I mean, that business of the moment when they're asking each other advice, this is sort of striking. It's a it's a parenthesis, really. But I think it's an interesting, possibly a telling one that just after, you know, The wastelands coming up to publication. Pound has just done his famously extraordinary radical surgery on it over months and months and months. And then he finishes the eighth canto and he sends it to Ford's Maddox Ford for his comments and doesn't send it to Eliot. How do you read that?
0: It's a really interesting moment. So to put that in a little context, in 1921, Eliot begins drafting the wasteland proper, as it were, and for the first time, he isn't showing Pound his page by page drafts because Pound isn't around. Pound has already left England and moved to France, and in fact, is on his travels for much of the early part of 1921. So it's only right at the end of 1921 where Eliot has at least three and a half parts of the wasteland completed. Pound even gets to see it, so that's very unusual. And then Pound stays in Paris while Elliot travels to Switzerland to see a psycho healer. He's not a psychotherapist.
1: He sounds a bit quacky,
0: doesn't he? (laughs) Well, he's a character called Roger Vito, who believed that he could help his patients by laying hands on their cranium, and he could feel the tremors of their thought patterns. And what he tried to teach them, unlike his peers Freud in Vienna and Carl Jung nearby, was that the unconscious was not something to be drawn to the surface. It was something to be suppressed because what he wanted to help people with was control over their their physical daily bodies and manners. tongue Yeah, and that's what Eliot felt he lacked. When Eliot's crisis hit its peak in the middle 1921, he felt he'd lost control of his brain and even his body. He looked to Vito to help him in that, and so he went to Switzerland.
1: This was quite a serious nervous breakdown, wasn't it, we should make clear? I mean, he'd had like three months off the bank.
0: He had, and he began that in Margate where he famously sat in the shelter and said he could connect nothing with nothing. And he continued it in Switzerland. And it was in Switzerland that he finished the poem. It's in Switzerland he wrote the fourth and fifth parts. And he wrote them out by hand because he wasn't carrying a typewriter with him. And he wrote one in fair copy and one in pencil manuscript. And he came back through Paris and he laid all these pages before Pound. Pound said of the manuscript too much of it can't read it won't read it until you type it and pound lens elliot his typewriter so that he can actually type out these parts for a few days and at that point they start working editorially on the poem together and they have a week in paris where they get it into a very close shape to the poem that we understand today and as you rightly say sam when this is finished when elliot has left paris and he goes back to london with his pages 19 pages a damn fine poem as Pound is telling everybody who will listen at the time, Pound has also reached his eighth canto. And the eighth canto is the most wasteland-like of all the writings Pound has done. And it clearly, you can even see it in almost versions of lines from the wasteland that appear in Pound's writing at that time. But he doesn't send it to Eliot. He doesn't lean on Eliot. He goes back to older friends for advice. And why doesn't he do that? I think it's because there was a selfless streak in Pound always. He clothed, he fed, he financed writers from his own pocket, even though he was never rich. Those he believed had talent, and Eliot was the top of his list. He realised that Eliot had written what he came to say was, as it were, the calling card of the generation. I don't think he wanted to disturb it in his final hours. And he let Eliot finish the poem in London on his own.
1: Incidentally, when he visited Switzerland, you know, he's diagnosed with what's called Abouli,
0: isn't he? This was Vito's word for it, exactly.
1: Vito's word. I'm wondering, do you think that in some sort of false friend way will have brought in that Gerard de Nerval line that appears in the poem, Le prince d'Équitine à la tour à Boulie? Is that a sort of joke to self, do you think?
0: That's very good, Sam. I wish I'd spotted that myself. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's exactly right. And Nerval is one of the writers that he'd been looking at in that period. But he goes through his own copy. I'm just reaching for it, which is why I'm just going off of Vito's book. And I've been lucky enough to see Eliot's own copy in which he pencil marks all sorts of passages throughout the book, which are to do with physical control, sometimes even stomach pains, bowel movements. Eliot was having a lot of pains in his hand. He found it very difficult to write at length with the pen at this point. And he was seeking a kind of mastery over a total crisis in self-confidence. A total crisis in a public space or an ability to be in control of his own mannerisms and it was through this as it were management of routine physical order that he restored it briefly and his exercises were that he would spend half an hour with Vito with hands-on cranium and the rest of the day Vito would instruct him to do such things as move his fingers left and right hold his arm in the air concentrate on the marks on his hand to give constant physical attention to yourself so you learned how to control your body and mysteriously this was one of the keys that helped unlock the latter passages of the poem to,
1: to move from the you know more abstract to the more concrete you know as you say he had trouble writing a lot of attention is paid in your book to typewriters to the importance of I mean partly to where given that we didn't have photocopiers, where the carbons of this and that were at any given time and who had them and how we could get them back and post them. I mean, how much of a contribution did the fact that he was typing it make to the publication of the poem, to the way he composed
0: it? I think a great deal. I mean, I think it's fair to say that The Wasteland could not have been written at any other time in history because it comes at a moment of electrification and Elliot himself was working in a bank in which the offices had changed unrecognizably from the situation before the war. I mean, every desk had telephones which weren't in place before. Fax machines had just been invented, early versions of that, and early versions of photocopiers. Memos were being sped across the building in photostat form so messages could be passed within seconds or at least minutes which hadn't happened before. But one of the most fundamental changes in the the office culture was the advent of the typist that were now everywhere in all office culture, and very noisy it was too. A lot of women had moved into the clerk role during the war and replaced men that were at the front, and they continued in that work. And Eliot himself began drafting on a typewriter around about 1915, 1916 during the war, as he says to a friend, Comrade Aitken, And he said that he thought that it sloughed off some of his more romantic phrases that he was prone to whilst using the pen. And he's not alone. I mean, there were many poets, particularly in America at the time, that were making great use of this. And William Carlos Williams and E.E. Cummings were two who were using the typewriter as a form of visual composition as well, where you could begin to see for the first time, which is incredibly important to poets, you could begin to see what a poem might look like as it were published, through the composition of a typewriter, which you can never do in manuscript. And I still find it very hard to read a poem or judge a poem in in manuscript in a way that when you see it in typescript, it works on a different part of your brain. But it was an arduous one. And as you say, carbons were very important. A poet then, like Eliot, would have only two copies of a poem that they were working on. They had the ribbon copy, the top copy, and then they put the carbon in between, and then they had the carbon copy underneath. They would keep one copy for themselves for drafting and revising, and they would send the other one out for opinion to friends and writers or perhaps to a printer. And often that worked well. Sometimes if they made the mistake of sending out both copies, they didn't have their poem anymore. And you can see moments where Eliot urges for Gerontian back from one of his colleagues because he wants to take it off to France to show Pound, but he doesn't have a copy with him which seems extraordinary today when we we have multiple drafts and printers and desktop publishing and everything else. But it was a real fidelity to that art. And it was a real mechanical action, which for some writers, even today, is very close to the act of composition and a very useful process to them.
1: Yeah. Now, we haven't talked much yet about Vivian. And one of the things that really interested me reading your book was, I mean, it's long been sort of said that the difficulties in their marriage were one of the things that most profoundly influenced the poem. But you get some detail on that Vivian was actually herself a really good editor of the poem in certain respects. I mean, she made made some marks, didn't she?
0: She did indeed, um, and she was a great listener to Eliot. and you can see in various parts of his correspondence saying that he didn't know how good the poem was yet because he hadn't had Vivian's eye upon it. But actually, rather than her eye, it was her ear that was the greatest asset to The Wasteland in terms of its editing. She was responsible for, as it were, tightening up some of the famous pub scenes of Albert and Lil in a game of chess. She would mark moments of great encouragement in those poems, but also fine tuning. She she probably came up with the word demobbed as a brilliant crystallization of what was happening with the returning troops. But most famously of all, when Eliot is talking about the situation of the the marriage of the characters in the poem, he rather fumbles at one of the lines that he's attempting to, to bring into the poem that she tightens up in a really rather surprising way, which is, what do you want to get married for if you don't want to have children? And it's a very key line, not only to the poem, but also to their own situation, because their marriage was a childless marriage. And there are signs in the marriage that Elliot perhaps rather did want to have children in his life and that Vivian didn't. But Elliot of those children didn't want to necessarily have them with Vivian. Vivian had been told throughout her upbringing that she couldn't or shouldn't have children. She was told that her possible mental instability could be inherited and it would be a cruelty to hand that down. And the only line that, Vivian, as it were, intercedes on the poem with the hope and expectation that it might be removed. Was a line from the game of chess, which I think is possibly a reference to the childless situation of their marriage that gnaws away at the couple and particularly at her. So, in that sense, she was a great listener to the poem and a great tuner of the poem, but also she was, as Eliot says, the force out of which the poem came.
1: And she vetoed one line, which is the ivory men make company between us. Why do you think that was such a, a difficult line? I mean, so we should explain how we know she vetoed it, actually. But
0: oh, Because much later in life, when Elliot remarried to Valerie Elliot, he kept a notebook for her, where he wrote out in fair copies, the poems that he thought were special to her. And among those was a version of The Wasteland. And he put a great big asterisk beside the line, the ivory men keep company between us, and noted on it for Valerie that Vivian had asked for it. No, insisted on its removal. And what was interesting about Elliot was not only for... Valerie, his second wife, but also when he writes out the poem from memory in 1960 in Morocco when he's recovering from ill health and, in fact, not far from the last years of his life, and he's writing out this poem from memory, he restores that line that Vivian had him take out. Now, why does he do it and why was it taken out? Well, the section is from a game of chess and the ivory men are probably the pieces which ivory is cold to touch until the human hand warms it. But I think it's an image of the the surrounding population of the chessboard. And I think it's an image of the voices that were not present in their marriage, which was those of younger voices. And these younger voices appear throughout Eliot's poetry. And in fact, in many moments in The Wasteland too. And I think it's that that Vivian had felt hurt by because I think she felt there would be a public scrutiny from the Bloomsbury peers about the childless condition of their marriage if that line were to appear.
1: Yeah. You mentioned voices. I mean, one of the really striking things I found was that there's this maybe it's a shift in the process of the composing of the poem. Elliot at one point says he you know, I a mean, word that's often used of of the wasteland is polyphonic, that you know, it's a kind of collage of different voices and styles. But Eliot at one point says, I don't want different people. Re- you know, when it's read aloud, it shouldn't be a collection of people reading it like a play, different parts. It needs to be one voice all the way through. Was that a, a shift in his thinking? Because obviously, notably, you know, it for a long time, had a sort of working title: "He Do the Police in Different Voices," which changed.
0: That's right, and he had that working title while he was working on the first half of the poem, the first two parts of that poem, which is the Burial of the Dead and the Game of Chess. Carry this working title: "He Do the Police in Different Voices" from from Dickens, and that seemed to exactly capture the moment you're talking about, Sam, where early on, Eliot is rather like a series of photographs laid out across the table, or to use the more audio metaphor that a brilliant critic in the 1940s came up with, rather like tuning a long wave radio between stations where you begin to hear a pattern of different voices, different languages, some hiss and crackle, moving as the dial turns. We have this sort of extraordinary range of uh, voices and images coming on and off stage, which we were talking about a little bit at the beginning. And I think one of the possible ways to think about approaching the wasteland is to treat it as I think Elliot hoped we might something like a music hall bill where you had entertainers you had musicians you had a comedic moment you had a romantic moment you had a series of different turns which came on and off and on and off and so his his use of voices is absolutely Brilliant there. And at the same time, he's picking up on Pound talking about Paris as a series of images layered one on top of each other, a little like negatives or photographs, where you can see a little of the impression of one behind the image of another. He's interested in the cinema at the same point, he's interested in dance hall. A lot of American popular rhythm music, all sorts of forms that were then considered "quote unquote" low art, not high. Which is interesting for a poem of this nature. There's a
1: surprising amount of America in it, incidentally. I mean, you you know, you suggest I think that the Brown Fog, which I you know, I've always thought of as a London piece. So you said that might be the St. Louis of his childhood. And that. I mean, it's ragtime in there as well, obviously.
0: And there is, and for people that don't know his upbringing, he grew up in St. Louis in a part of town in which his grandfather and his father had built their own houses. And at the time that Elliot was growing up there, it had become quite run down. The middle classes had taken what they called a white flight out to the suburbs with the building of the trams. But the Elliots had stayed behind because they'd built this with their own hands and they were damn well going to hang on to it. And so the area started to be filled with speakeasies and ragtime bars. And a lot of the sounds and rhythms that you can hear in the wasteland are actually some of the sounds that he grew up listening to. So so all of that can be traced to. So those images and sounds absolutely flow through the wasteland. But you're absolutely right, Sam. He didn't want it to be a poem for multiple voices. He wanted it to be a poem for one voice using different, different sounds and different moments. And at one point, he does object when there's going to be a radio production where four different actors are brought in to read different parts of The Waste sand, And he would say, no, 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 that isn't what I intended at all. That's not what I meant at all.
1: <laughs> Incidentally, do you have a sort of favorite reading of it? Because I mean, Alec Guinness obviously put his stamp on it. I just wonder whether you've ever come across the amazing drunk PJ Proby reading.
0: I haven't heard the latter, but I do love the Alec Guinness. And I think particularly the high camp flavour of the bar scene that Alec Guinness does is absolutely superb. But of all the readings, and there are many, and there are many that superb, by far the best is Eliot's. And it's not everybody's style. It's not everybody's style to, to listen to him like oh, that. I've got to say, yeah, I,
1: I struggle to agree.
0: <laughs> um, but once that cadence is in your mind, I can't shake it out. And I absolutely love it. But not you, Sam. Is that right?
1: <laughs> really? I, I I find it something about his, his clippedness I find hard to get past. But I'll have to. Hurry up, please. It's
0: time.
1: <laughs> yes. Now, can I, can I ask also, you talk in great and fascinating detail about the Cuts and excisions Pound makes, and his marginalia are often very funny. I mean, it's so humanising that you get him writing just bollocks. Yes. <laughs> he says at one point, <laughs> you know, more than one point, in fact.
0: But also, just to put that one bollocks in context, um, this was a phrase that Eliot had had tried to bring into his poem whilst in Margate in manuscript. And had really struggled at a passage that, although it's only 12 lines or so in length, it looks as if it's twice as many because he cancelled and cancelled and cancelled. And then he painfully typed it out lengthily, lengthily, lengthily. And by the time it gets to Pound, Pound just takes a pen, puts a line through the whole thing. And as you say, Sam writes bollocks beside the whole thing.
1: <laughs> it's, I mean, Elliot's remarkably resilient to this sort of stuff. I mean, But obviously, the maybe the decisive, the most important kind of cut that Pound makes is the first one is that you know at the beginning of the poem. There's about 75 lines of you know, kind of people sailing on a drunken night out through Boston, which completely goes goes in its entirety. And you know, it's almost like there's no poem there at one point because because that was the substance of the poem. But there's something you say that's intriguing about that. You think that what might have crystallized that is that Eliot reading Circe when he read that section of Joyce's Ulysses. That may have actually done for that whole opening bit of the poem.
0: Yeah, I think you've added a very important third writer to the, to the energies of The Wasteland, which is James Joyce, of course. Now, both Eliot and Pound were editing Joyce at the time. They were both involved with journals in London and getting him published. And Ulysses, 14 or so of the chapters of the 18, were published in small magazines in New York and London. And with much help from Elliot and Pound. And Elliot had begun to read some of the work in TypeScript. And there is one section right at the beginning of the poem, As You Say, Sam, Rightly, which begins at a drunken night out in probably Boston that involves young gentlemen, probably from Harvard University, going in for a night on the town where they overstep the permissible bounds in a gentleman's club and are thrown out, where they're caught by policemen, you know, causing a nuisance in an alleyway, i.e. urinating, where they're nearly arrested until somebody intervenes. And it's a, it's a sort of bawdy night out in town that eventually goes. And I think actually Elliot himself cuts it rather than Pound. It's one of the areas that I think Elliot, though he shows it to Pound, I'm sure, decides that it doesn't fit. And one argument for a reason it doesn't fit is he'd read the Night Town episodes and Ulysses and typescripts, which he thought had done it ever more brilliantly than he could possibly ever do, and it should go, but equally, I think there was a personal reason, that I think I think he thought it would offend his mother. I think the values on show of these bawdy young men were not the kind of values that he wanted to be seen to communicate to her at the time, especially given all the attention that he'd told her that this poem was coming and here it came. And so you're absolutely right. He cuts that first part. And what many readers and listeners might not be aware is that the famous lines, April is the cruelest month, breeding appeared about halfway through that first passage of the first section of the poem and only became the first line of the poem probably later on.
1: Which maybe is, is the decisive decisive cut. Which, say, so speaking of his mother, that the, the breakdown he suffered did follow very hard on the heels of his mother visiting London, didn't it?
0: It did. And that takes us back into the middle of 1921. So Eliot is about six months into the typing of the poem i mean you can argue that in his mind he'd sort of been composing it perhaps for a year or two before but he doesn't have the ability to start on it because he's exhausted, because he's moving a house, because he's working at the bank, because he's teaching. He's having his evenings and his editorial time all taken up. But he gets it going in 1921. And in the summer of 1921, she visits with her daughter and her son. And they come to stay in Elliot's own flat. The Elliots move out. And Elliot's great hope of a unification, a reunion with his mother to overcome the death of his father, to have his wife accepted five years after their marriage, they're meeting for the first time. Everything seems pinned on this and it doesn't happen. The mother doesn't really accept Elliot's new literary life. She certainly doesn't accept Vivian as an equal partner to her son. She leaves, Elliot realises that he's never going to be reunited with mother any more than he ever was with his father It becomes too much for him. He breaks down shortly after. He takes leave from the bank, and that's the trail that takes him first to Margate, then to Switzerland, as he finishes and really completes the activity and the actions of the poem.
1: The poem itself, it's a magpie poem. It pinches phrases and images and styles from all over the shop. But the extent to which there was this sort of you know, I don't want to say plagiarism, but borrowing or echoing that goes on. I mean, you mentioned one thing which is kind of fascinating to me: It's Conrad Aiken. He, you, you know, very obviously borrows some of Eliot's lines, and then when Citroenians published, it's then Aiken goes, "You know what? I think that debt's cleared because." And you go through line by line, and it really does look like Eliot has actually lifted, you know, half a dozen lines at least from Conrad Aiken. Is that that the you know, immature poets borrow, mature poets steal moment.
0: Well, I think you said it exactly. I mean, that was Eliot's great quip on the subject matter. But to be serious about his activity there, when I say that we were talking about all of literature happening at once, one of the things Eliot felt absolutely passionately about was that we must stay in touch with our ancestors, our literary ancestors, our cultural ancestors. And the moment he has in the south of France, in the caves... At the Fond de Gaume, where he sees the activity of the Magdalenian wall art and he realizes that we're all involved in the same sort of project and we're all using and developing and contributing and enlarging our cultural contributions. He would say that all of this, in a way, belongs to everybody and he is in commune with that idea. He wants to enlarge that idea of a great European culture and that's what I think you can see him doing in his writing. Now, for some people, Over the years, that has drawn too close to, as you say, a borrowing or even a plagiarism. And he does quote a lot in the poem. More often, he riffs as well, and he does modern, new transcriptions and transpositions of those works. But every now and again, he gets in trouble with it. An example you give is Conrad Aiken, who is a friend and supporter, and who very generously was one of the first to recognise the brilliance of the wasteland, but who also appeared to recognise moments of his own poetry in the wasteland and in other poems of Eliot's. and it's hard to say that eliot hadn't somehow absorbed many of these influences around in a sponge like fashion often he, he he improved them i think that's that's possible to say but for some people that will still be a mark about or a question mark about what constitutes original poetry but eliot has an answer to that too and he would say that you're asking the wrong question if what you're asking about is originality because all of it is in constant communication and constant commune, and Here I Am is the latest in the line of that conversation.
1: Well, maybe that's part of the way of turning your guns on the romantics, isn't it?
0: <laughs> Certainly, yeah.
1: Now, obviously, the vaunted difficulty of the poem you know, is a thing that persists to this day, and there are, as you, we mentioned earlier, those notes. Now, as you describe it, those notes are in part a response to a publication difficulty, that All his publishers were saying, this is too short. We need to bulk it out a bit. How seriously, therefore, are they to be taken? I mean, what was Eliot doing with them? Were they just filler?
0: Well, over the winter of 1921-22, Eliot is involved in a great dinner in Paris. And at this great dinner is the American publisher-to-be of the poem The Wasteland, Horace Live right, live right, and Horace hosts a dinner that has Pound, Elliot, and James Joyce at it. And at the end of this evening, this very, very drunken evening, Live right has effectively agreed to publish Ulysses in New York. He's given Pound a contract to translate whatever he likes in return for his rent in Paris for the next year and more. And to Elliot, he's offered sight unseen publication of this poem, The Wasteland. He didn't even know what the title was then because it didn't exist at the time. But Now, this was a remarkable moment for Eliot because he hadn't found a literary establishment to take his work seriously at this moment. Now, here was this new publisher in New York who was going to offer sight unseen for the poem that Pound had been picking up. But when the publisher got to hear a little bit more about the length of the poem, I think at this moment still hadn't seen the poem, but just heard how many pages it would be, wrote to Pound slightly worriedly and said, you know, can't Eliot add anything? It's too small. Now, this got back to Eliot just at the moment that he was finalising his draft with Pound and his last, last work of it in London early in 1922. And he sort of panics. And he does some remarkable things, Sam. He starts to add in materials that had absolutely no place in the poem whatsoever he started looking at little envoys or possibly interludes short poems that might come between the sections of the poem now that's quite interesting because it takes us back to this idea of a music hall or a bill in which you have a performance and then you have a little refresher or an interval another performance and so on a series of acts and so these short incongruous poems some of which end up in the New York Library and are published in the facsimile edition are thought to go in between. And he does some other incredible things. He thinks about putting Gerontian as a preface to The Wasteland, to have this, this poem, separate poem, Gerontian. It's already been in print. It's already been print for two years, and here it is about to become part one or pre part one of The Wasteland. And Pound says, no, 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 don't do any of that. The poem is big enough as it is. Already the longest poem in the English language, as he famously says, and you mustn't add to it at that point. And that's when Pound writes his squibs, including, as you mentioned earlier, the idea that Pound performed the Caesarean operation when he when he edited the poem. And even more mysteriously, what Eliot does then with Pound's squibs is ask Pound, can he put them in the wasteland? I mean, extraordinary thing is going on here. We're on the eve of this poem that's gone from nearly 800, 900 lines down to the form that we have it close to today, 400 and something lines at this point. It's finding its finest and most most full, perfect form. And suddenly Eliot is trying to add interludes, add Gerontian, add squibs, jokey squibs of Pound's into the poem Unfortunately, none of that happens at the moment. But what does happen is he writes notes. He produces notes to go at the back of the poem, which he comes to realise can never be taken away, though at some moments he says he wishes they would be taken away. Are they to be taken seriously? Yes, of course. And no, of course, not at the same time. They're not a sixth part of the poem, but I think it's impossible to print the poem without them these days because they are in a kind of conversation with it. And they have, of course fueled their entire literature, their entire study, and almost an industry of themselves.
1: <laughs> yes, that's a tricky question to ask, but do you think The Wasteland is is the pinnacle of Eliot's work, or do you think that goes to, well, maybe four quartets would probably be the obvious competitor?
0: I think both works are obviously incredibly important, but for slightly different ways. And I think what makes The Wasteland exceptional in its own way is that it came at a moment where confidence in any moral world order seemed to have been shattered by the experience of the war. And I think it speaks extraordinarily to the world situation on which it was mapped. And I think it also speaks extraordinarily movingly, in fact, to a kind of mental fugue. I think it expresses brilliantly Eliot's struggle with his own mental health and his record of Vivian's as it were, flight and fugue at the same time. And I think it I think it does that in incredibly moving ways too. And you could say that that might make it a piece of its time. But I would say that I think one of the things that's extraordinary about it and the fact that here we are 100 years later talking about it together today is that those are conditions that seem to travel with us. Here we are in a situation where there's war in Europe once again and we can see echoes and resonances in Eliot's poem here we are at a time where people's mental happiness and well-being is of great concern to us all and I think we can see a window and a portrait into that too and I think for this what Eliot says is great personal utterance situated against what many readers have said is one of the great you know cultural outward facing poems of the time I think it's an extraordinary combination that stays rich to us today But I think it does a very different sort of articulation to the later work, and I'm pleased to say both have their place.
1: They do. Now, unfortunately, there's a point at which I have to say, it's time. (laughs) So, Matthew Hollis, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Sam.